Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Killer Psyche ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. A listener note. This episode contains adult content and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. When I was 14 years old, my brother Keith took me to see the movie Psycho at the Marina Theater on Chestnut Street in San Francisco. It was the first time I'd seen a horror movie in a theater, and what a movie to start with. I was so terrified, I didn't take a shower for weeks. This was really the first time I'd ever seen a movie in which the bad guy was not overtly evil-looking where they were not constantly telegraphing the fact that the character was a murderer or a killer. Norman Bates, and I'm assuming all true crime fans have seen this movie, and if not, you need to. Norman was slightly odd, but he looked like a shy, normal guy. I really did not expect the reveal that happens at the end. I told myself, oh, come on, this is make-believe. It's just a movie right out of Hollywood. No one would ever be that disturbed to keep the dead with them in their house. But Psycho was based on a real story, on a real man. His name was Ed Gein. And the town he lived in, in Wisconsin, considered him a nice guy, if not slightly odd. He had lived there most of his life and worked odd jobs as a handyman. Most of the families felt sorry for him and invited him over to eat dinner. Some of them even let him babysit their children. What they would later learn about Ed Gein is what the audience learns about Norman Bates, that looks can be deceiving, and that their nice, quiet neighbor committed crimes far more shocking than any movie. As a Killer Psyche listener, you'll love Audible's new pulse-pounding collection of exclusive thrillers that are guaranteed to keep you on the edge of your seat. With captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances, their titles are brought to life. I recommend The Killer Across the Table by John Douglas, my mentor at the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, and his co-author, Mark Olshacker. It is great. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash psyche or text psyche to 500-500. That's audible.com slash psyche or text psyche to 500-500. Killer Psyche is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Wondery and Treefort, I'm Candace DeLong, and this is Killer Psyche. 
I've spent five decades studying people's minds through my work as an FBI profiler and psychiatric nurse. I've interviewed many murderers, serial killers included, and the question I get asked time and time again is why they did what they did. It's difficult to get a satisfying answer without diving deep into the killer's mindsets. So in this series, I will do just that and give you my best analysis of what made them do what they did. This episode is about Ed Gein, Hollywood's favorite killer. A good friend of mine, Gail, was a counselor at a summer camp in Hayward, Wisconsin in the late 70s. The psychiatric hospital where Gein was committed was right across the lake. Around the campfire at night, the counselors would tell the kids that the swamp man who skinned people alive was right across the lake and that he frequently escaped. They would claim that you could hear him scratching on the screen windows at night. And then the counselors would go around scratching the windows and terrifying the campers. The swamp man was supposed to be Ed Gein. Now, of course, this was full of hyperbole and misinformation, but most ghost stories are. Over the last several decades, the story of Ed Gein has become twisted by the terrible parts of our imagination. But I have to tell you, it's really not necessary since the truth was horrible enough. After his crimes came to light, the press dubbed him a ghoul and a boogeyman. His murders and his penchant for using human body parts for decoration and furniture horrified the public. In 1957, the idea that someone would do these things seemed unfathomable and frankly, more like movie imagination. And even now, he continues to be the inspiration for many of Hollywood's scariest killers, including Norman Bates, Buffalo Bill, and Leatherface. November is the beginning of hunting season in Plainfield, Wisconsin. In the late 1950s, the town would clear out because most of the men were heading into the woods to hunt, which is why no one heard the shotgun blast that took the life of one of its most beloved residents. On November 16, 1957, Ed Gein, a local handyman, entered Warden's Hardware Store on the corner of North and Main Streets. The night before, he had been there, and he mentioned that he needed to get antifreeze and that he'd be back the next day. Ed had been hanging around the store a lot in the previous weeks. Some of the locals thought he paid a lot of attention to Mrs. Warden, Bernice, and some said he seemed even a little obsessed with her. But this was all written off as typical Ed behavior. He was considered by most in town to be odd, but a nice guy. So that day, he came in for half a gallon of antifreeze, and after Bernice poured it for him, he took it out to his truck. He returned just as she was writing the receipt and asked to see a rifle that was in the window. When she went to retrieve it, Ed came up behind her and shot her in the back of the head, and then he slit her throat. He then loaded her in the back of his truck and drove off. It was not until hours later that someone reported Bernice was not in her store. Her son, Frank, 
was also the local deputy sheriff. He went there to check on her. When he entered, he found the store empty, the cash register open, and a pool of blood on the floor. Frank immediately suspected Ed Gein because of his recent preoccupation with his mother. When investigators arrived, they discovered the last receipt written for the day was for Ed's antifreeze, and that confirmed Frank's suspicions. The police went to Ed's house to question him, but he wasn't there, and his house was locked. So they went around the side and found an open shed next to the house. However, Ed did not have electricity, so the shed was very dark and quiet. The officers had to use their flashlights to search the area, and as they looked around, they illuminated an object in the middle of the room. At first, they thought that they were looking at a deer that had been field-dressed. But upon closer inspection, they realized it was the headless body of Bernice Warden hanging by her heels from the ceiling. She had been slid open from her sternum to her pelvis and completely gutted. I've seen that photograph in profiler training back in the 80s. And I can say, based on all the crime scene photos I've seen, this particular photograph of this particular event was the most shocking I've ever seen. That one human could do that to another. But that was just the beginning of the horrors discovered inside Ed's house. Once the police gained access to the main house, they were overwhelmed by the amount of trash inside. It looked like an episode of Hoarders. And it was among this chaos, they discovered what was almost incomprehensible. Objects that were made out of human body parts and skin. Among these pieces were chairs upholstered with skin, bowls made out of human skulls and gloves made out of human fingers. Ed had fashioned himself a female skin suit that police later found out he wore with numerous masks that he had made out of women's faces. They also uncovered the face mask and skull of the owner of a local tavern. Her name was Mary Hogan, and she had been missing for three years. The police tracked Ed down, and because of all the evidence they found at his house, they arrested him. After 24 hours in custody, Ed finally started talking. He did not ask for a lawyer, and he did not ask for a plea deal. What he asked for was a piece of apple pie with a slice of cheese on it. He got the pie, and after he was done enjoying it, he freely confessed to killing Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden. But while Ed confessed to the murders of those two women, he denied killing anyone else. He claimed that the rest of the body parts they saw came from local graves that he had dug up. And sometimes he'd even return the jewelry and body parts that he did not use back to their original coffins. Being skeptical and thorough, the investigators dug up some of the coffins to test his confession. And for the most part, they were able to corroborate what Ed had told them. Remember, this happened decades ago and forensic science was limited back then. 
So the police were never able to verify who the body parts belonged to. DNA testing did not exist as a tool back then. There were, however, 12 heads, and Ed only admitted to 11 of those crimes. Not surprisingly, Ed's case created a huge media circus, and both the press and public descended on the tiny Wisconsin town of Plainfield. The town, which had happily lived in obscurity, was now known as the home of the Butcher of Plainfield. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? As the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. Its advanced technology protects every room, window, and door of your home while cameras keep watch for suspicious activity 24-7, all for less than a dollar a day. And there's no long-term contract, ever. I love Simply Safe because it's so straightforward and easy to install. Knowing that my home is protected 24-7 gives me so much peace of mind. It's great that I can always check on my home through the app on my phone. Protect your home today. My listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash psyche. That's simplysafe.com slash psyche. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Ed was born in La Crosse County, Wisconsin in 1906. He was the youngest child of Augusta and George Gein. George was an alcoholic who only worked occasionally at odd jobs, sometimes a tanner, an insurance salesman, sometimes a carpenter. For a few years, he owned a local grocery store in La Crosse before the family decided to move. Ed's mother, Augusta, was extremely religious and she worried that La Crosse County was too wild a place to raise her sons. So when Ed was only eight, he and his older brother Henry moved with the family to a large farm, 155 acres, in Plainfield, Wisconsin. The farm was very isolated, but that was exactly how Augusta liked it. The boys were not allowed to have any friends, and they could only leave the farm to go to school. Augusta was a devout Lutheran and fanatically religious. She worried that anyone the boys came into contact with might taint them. In fact, any time Ed or George made a new friend, she would punish them. Augusta had very rigid ideas about sin and morality. She told her sons that the world was full of sinners and evil people and that all women, herself not included, were whores and instruments of the devil. Every day, Augusta would read to them from the Bible, usually selecting verses about death, murder, and divine retribution. Not only was Augusta domineering and, well, verbally abusive to her sons, but she punished them frequently for any transgressions she believed they'd committed. She would also talk about the evils of alcohol, and she was not at all shy about the hatred she had for their father, George. 
She would even pray for his death right in front of them. Ed's relationship with his father was not good either. In fact, his father would frequently beat him so badly, according to Ed, that his ears would literally ring. This is an important part of the story because Ed Gein certainly is not the only person who became a killer who received beatings about the head as a child. Ed's teachers and classmates would later say that they remember him as a shy kid and kind of odd. They said sometimes he would just break out into laughter for no apparent reason. Inappropriate laughter that happens often enough that others notice it can be a sign of psychosis. It can and frequently does mean that the child is hearing voices, voices that are only in his head, and they're making him laugh. He was also memorable physically. Ed had a growth on his left eye that had resulted in him having what's called a lazy eye, and the other kids teased him mercilessly about it. He did, however, do pretty well in school, and he especially loved reading. It was a pastime he would continue into and throughout his adulthood. But at the age of 12, he stopped going to school and instead worked on the family farm. To the relief of his mother, this was the end of him having any significant interaction with the outside world. Most of Ed's poor social development can be blamed on his parents and how they isolated him and his brother. Studies on social isolation and brain function have shown that it can impair the development of the brain's structure. A scientific study in 2012 used young mice and monkeys to show how the brain is strongly affected by a lack of social interaction and relationships. The researchers found critical cells in the prefrontal cortex were unable to communicate well with each other. That part of our brain modulates the amount of attention we pay things, impulse inhibition, memory, as well as what's known as executive functions like planning, flexibility, and social interaction. The researchers argued that if the development of these brain cells is disrupted, children can possibly develop deficits in these areas of the brain. It also showed that not only does social isolation impair the physiological functions of the body, but it also affects how the nervous system supports those cells. These, in turn, influence the development of cognitive functioning. It's a circuitous route to a neurologically impaired child. After dropping out of school at 12 years old, Ed's only respite from the isolation on the farm was his older brother, Henry. But their brutal alcoholic father and fire and brimstone mother provided little comfort. While other families of the 20s might gather around the fireplace and listen to the radio, the Gaines' home had no electricity. But Augusta had her Bible. Augusta's fervent beliefs were also a factor in Ed's development. This is a form of abuse called religious abuse. It's a psychological manipulation that controls a person using the doctrines of the manipulator's religion. When used against a child, this type of religiously-based psychological abuse 
can dominate children through fear or indoctrinate them with the abuser's beliefs while suppressing other perspectives. Psychologist Jill Mighton describes this as, and I quote, crushing the child's chance to form a personal morality and belief system. It makes them utterly reliant on their religion or their parents, and they never learn to reflect critically on information they receive. Similarly, the use of fear in a judgmental environment, such as the concept of hell, to control the child can be traumatic. This type of abuse can be well-intentioned or malicious, but either way, it can have long-term side effects. The Journal of Interpersonal Violence just published a recent study which showed that religious or ritual abuse may result in mental health issues such as dissociative disorders. By isolating her children and putting the fear of God literally into them, Augusta made the boys afraid of the world and highly dependent on her. She may not have been aware of how this would affect her children, but in the long term, it certainly played a huge part in Ed's eventual crimes. The isolation and religious abuse became worse after George died of heart failure in 1940. And even though the boys were older, they were still living at home and under Augusta's total domination. To support themselves, Ed and his brother worked odd handyman jobs, but Ed also babysat for neighbors. He seemed able to relate better to the kids than to their parents. While Ed worshipped his mother, his brother Henry did not feel the same way. After interacting more and more with other people, Henry began to pull away from his mother's beliefs. He began a relationship with a divorced mother of two and planned to move in with her. That was scandalous, the sin of sins. Henry talked with his brother about his dependency and attachment to their mother. This type of dependency is a form of enmeshment, a concept formed by the family therapist Salvador Mnuchin in the 70s. Enmeshment is a psychological term. It typically happens in families with blurred boundaries. Children in enmeshed families may be brought up with the expectation that they will follow their parents' wishes completely and have exactly the same beliefs and ideals. But obviously, this can be problematic. Why? It can prevent young people from developing a sense of self, having regular relationships with peers, and learning how to self-regulate their emotions. Later in life, children of enmeshed families may also experience an inability to tolerate any kind of distress and find it difficult to assert themselves. When a person has a low tolerance for distress, they can become easily overwhelmed by mildly stressful situations. Also, they can sometimes respond in negative mental and behavioral ways, such as lashing out, fleeing the situation, withdrawing, or abusing drugs and alcohol. Even simple lives can have stressful events happen, and if an adult is crippled by their upbringing in such a way that they cannot deal with it, their life is going to be a lot tougher. Ed could not relate to Henry's complaints about their mother. He was shocked and, frankly, 
very hurt when his brother would criticize their mother, and it caused a huge rift between them. In May of 1944, Ed and Henry were burning away marsh vegetation on their property when a brush fire got out of control. Ed supposedly lost track of his brother and ran to town for help. The family did not own a phone. When a search party came to look for Henry, despite claiming he lost his brother and didn't know where he was, Ed led them directly to his body. And even though there were unexplained bruises on his head, authorities accepted the accident theory. The county coroner ruled the official cause of death was asphyxiation. However, there had been no autopsy performed. But after Ed's crimes came to light, questions arose about his possible, or dare I say probable, involvement in Henry's death. Henry's death hit Augusta hard, and the stress of her grief led to a stroke that left her paralyzed. Ed happily devoted himself to taking care of his mother during this time. Augusta's worldview had not changed as the years went on, and she was still as entrenched in her ideals as she was when Ed was younger. In an interview conducted after his arrest, Ed relayed a story about a time when he and his mother went to buy straw from a man named Smith. While they were there to make the purchase, Smith began to beat a dog. Then a woman came out from his house and yelled at him to stop. But Smith ended up beating the dog to death right in front of them. Augusta was extremely upset by this, but not for the reason that you might think. She was not upset about the treatment and death of a defenseless animal. Her upset was directed at the woman that came out because she was not married to Smith. To Augusta, this meant she was a harlot and had no business being there. This horrible incident and her lack of compassion and how she focused on the wrong priority is a prime example of exactly how she dealt with her own children. Within 18 months, Augusta had another stroke and died in December of 1945. Ed was devastated. At the funeral, he reportedly wailed inconsolably through the entire service. Others would later say that he acted as though he were a young boy and not a 39-year-old man. Ed's development seems to have been arrested before even reaching adolescence, probably due to the beatings from his father, the religious abuse from his mother, and the isolation from playmates, teachers, and any other outsiders. To Ed, wailing like a child at the age of 39 at his mother's funeral was okay. He didn't know that would raise eyebrows. But when you look at his life, how could he know that was inappropriate? Now, years later, after Ed was arrested, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. His unfortunate upbringing and genetics had a lot to do with that. But after the death of his beloved mother, all the symptoms that were held at bay evolved and consumed him. It was as if she was the pin that held him together. He could not get past his mother's death. He would never get over it. The years of isolation and squalor he experienced on his farm 
only exacerbated his emerging derangement. I believe that Ed was schizophrenic, probably the type known as chronic and undifferentiated. He wasn't paranoid. He wasn't catatonic. He was what we call a simple schizophrenic. He did not see the world or the people in it the way it really was. Ed boarded up all the rooms used by his mother. Even though the rest of the house was filled with garbage, these rooms he kept pristine. And he began to read more. He focused in on anatomy books and stories involving Nazi experiments and cannibalism. He was especially into the atrocities of a woman named Ilsa Koch, a Nazi war criminal who was tried, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison for her depraved acts in the concentration camps. She was accused of taking skin souvenirs from murdered prisoners, among other unspeakable behaviors. Ed told investigators that he went to three local cemeteries around 40 times in a roughly five-year period between 1947 and 1952. He did it to dig up recently buried bodies. He claimed he was in a daze-like state when he did this. He said that he came out of that state during 30 of those 40 visits and did not disturb the graves during those times. The other 10 visits, however, he dug up recently deceased middle-aged women who reminded him of his mother. And it was from these corpses that he obtained the body parts with which he made the collections that were found at his house. This dazed state could be a depersonalization disorder. People with this disorder describe it as feeling like you are outside your body observing yourself or like being in a dream. They say they are disconnected from their body and their surroundings. It is often characterized by a glazed overlook a person that looks like nobody's home. Depersonalization, also called derealization, is a type of dissociative disorder. We've talked about dissociative disorders in other episodes on Killer Psyche. They are mental conditions associated with disruptions or breakdowns of awareness, consciousness, and memory. The term means the person's awareness of reality breaks off or dissociates from the core personalities. A traumatic event, for example, sex abuse, witnessing an accidental death or murder, or the death of a parent upon whom the child is extremely dependent, can often trigger depersonalization disorder. Clinicians believe this phenomena is a defense mechanism that protects the core personality from psychic damage. If someone has this disorder as a child and had the life Ed had with no anchor to stay grounded, it's easy to see how the seed of schizophrenia could grow. There has been a tremendous amount of misinformation about Ed Gein. Author Harold Schechter, who has written multiple books on Ed Gein, wrote about these myths and inconsistencies. He called out Dr. Edward Kelleher, a Chicago psychiatrist who offered a long-distance armchair analysis of Ed Gein for several newspapers and journals. At the time, 
Kelleher diagnosed Ed as a schizophrenic psychopath who presented symptoms of, quote, acute transvestism, fetishism, and necrophilia. Even though Kelleher's diagnosis of schizophrenia seems apropos, Ed did hear voices, he complained of overpowering odors, and he expressed a great deal of paranoia about neighbors and friends. All of these are symptoms of schizophrenia. But Schechter disagreed with Kelleher's diagnosis of transvestism and necrophilia. He goes on to say, quote, The actual psychiatric evaluations of Gein suggest that he was most probably psychotic, which is a clinical term for being out of touch with reality, but that he was not a necrophile. A necrophile is someone who was sexually aroused by dead bodies, but Ed never had sex with the corpses. He said the odor repelled him. I can tell you many infamous serial killers were necrophiles and had no problem getting past the odor problem. And none of the prison psychiatric reports diagnosed Ed as a transvestite either. A transvestite, by definition, is someone who enjoys dressing in the clothing of the opposite gender. We know today this is no big deal. It's not an illness. But back in the day, being labeled or diagnosed a transvestite by a clinician carried a tremendously negative connotation. It meant the individual was perverted, not well. We know today that's not the case. But just to be clear, Ed Gein was not a transvestite. And this is important. In fact, one psychiatrist that actually examined Ed Gein over a period of months maintained that Ed's desire for female body parts was a manifestation of his attempt not to be his mother, but to find a substitute for her in the form of a replica or body that could be kept indefinitely. I guess you might say Ed just couldn't let go. Now that may sound crazy that someone could confuse body parts with a real person that they missed, but let's not forget Ed's primary diagnosis was schizophrenia, and schizophrenia is a thought disorder. Ed Gein didn't think logically or correctly. So in his mind, if he created a substitute body, it might actually be his mother, and then he could always have her with him. So how did all these myths about Ed get started? Well, Schechter also discovered that the psychiatric team that treated Gein found that he was highly suggestible and had, quote, trouble distinguishing between what he actually remembered and what he was told by someone else. A potentially problematic situation for his police interrogators. Most likely the stories about Ed's cross-dressing can be traced to one of his so-called confessions. In this exchange with a Wisconsin crime lab polygraph specialist, Ed very cheerfully admitted, according to Schechter, almost everything suggested to him. The police theorized that Ed dressed in body parts and was sexually aroused during his cross-dressings. This is taken from the transcript of his police interview. Question. Do you have any recollection, Eddie, 
of taking any of those female parts, the vagina specifically, and holding it over your penis to cover the penis? Answer, I believe that's true. Question, you recall doing that with the vaginas of the bodies of other women? Answer, that I believe I do remember. That's right. Question, would you ever put on a pair of women's panties over your body and then put some of these vaginas over your penis? Answer, that could be. So what's going on here? Simply put, the interviewer put ideas in Ed's head, and Ed, wanting to please the interviewer, agreed to anything the interviewer suggested. In those days, a mentally ill person could be charged with murder and the prosecution might seek the death penalty. There is a reason that is no longer allowed, and what I just read you is the reason. It can be very easy to manipulate mentally ill people and also people who are intellectually deficient or what we would call mentally challenged. And so for this reason, the death penalty should never be on the table. Although Ed loved and worshipped his mother, some people who have studied Ed's case interpreted his murders of similar middle-aged women as evidence of his hatred of her. I'm not sure I agree with that. Ed stated that after his mother's death, he created a, quote, woman's suit so that he could become his mother, to literally crawl into her skin. And though this contradicts one of the psychiatrist's theories, it still does not indicate that he felt hatred towards her. After studying everything available about this case, I found no evidence anywhere that he had resentment towards his mother. I think the fact that Ed became so upset with his brother Henry when Henry would talk about wanting to leave home and that their mother was too out there supports that belief. Ed did not resent her. And when he killed the other women, he was not, quote, killing his mother. That may be true for other killers. It was not true for Ed Gein. Ed's adoration of his overbearing mother was the underlying theme in the book and movie Psycho, and Ed was the basis for the Norman Bates character. While Norman did keep his mother's body, he transformed into his mother to commit his murders. Ed never claimed to be his mother Augusta when he was committing the murders. He committed the murders to become his mother. Much like Richard Chase, who we covered in episode 11 of Killer Psyche, Ed Gein did not kill the two women in a sadistic manner. He killed them very quickly, then dismembered them after they were dead. He did not prolong or enjoy the killing. He killed because he needed their bodies to become more like them, more like the woman that they represented to him, his mother. As Norman Bates says in Psycho, a boy's best friend is his mother. And Ed desperately wanted his best and only friend back, even if he had to become her to do it. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? 
Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. On November 21st, 1957, Ed Gein pled not guilty by reason of insanity to one count of first-degree murder. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia and found mentally incompetent to stand trial. He was sent to a maximum security facility for the criminally insane. In 1968, the psychiatrist determined that he was mentally able to interact with his lawyers and therefore could participate in his defense. He was declared mentally fit for trial. The next trial lasted about one week and at the request of his defense counsel was conducted without a jury. That meant the decision was solely on the shoulders of the judge. After listening to the testimony of multiple doctors, the judge ruled Ed Gein not guilty by reason of insanity and ordered him back to the hospital for the criminally insane. The judge wrote that, quote, due to prohibitive costs, Gein was tried for only one murder, that of Mrs. Warden. He also admitted to killing Mary Hogan. After the first trial, Gein's possessions and house were set to be auctioned off. The auction was set for March 30th, 1958, it drew huge crowds of people who wanted to own something from the ghoul of Plainfield's estate. There was even talk of turning his house into a sideshow museum, and this infuriated and worried the citizens of the town. But luckily for the townspeople, 10 days before the auction, a fire destroyed the entire house because the firemen were unable to get there in time to save it. I should point out that the fire chief at the time was Frank Warden, the son of Ed's last victim. Ed Gein was a model prisoner and seemed happy to abide by the rules and restrictions of the hospital. Some people mused that it was more like the strict structure that Augusta had imposed on him, and he felt more at home with it. Ed Gein passed away from lung cancer on July 26, 1984. However, his story lives on in the multitude of books and movies he inspired. Besides Psycho, other well-known movies that were based on his life and crimes are The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Silence of the Lambs. The murderers in these movies, Buffalo Bill with his skin suit, Leatherface with his face mask made out of skin, and Norman Bates, each owe a part of their story to Ed Gein. 
And just like the real story of Ed Gein, they will be talked about forever. From Wondery and Tree Fort Media, this is Killer Psyche. Next week on Killer Psyche, I'll be covering John Orr, the Pillow Pyro. I'm your host, Candace DeLong. This episode was written and produced by Lisa Ammerman and Julie Burke. Edited by Joshua Morales with Maxwell Carney. With research and editing assistance from Ellie Lightfoot. Our senior audio producer is Tom Monahan. Brandon Clark and Lindsay Whistler are our production assistants, and the line producer is Oscar Guido. Our executive producers are Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman for Treefort, and Marshall Louie and Erin O'Flaherty for Wondery. This series is produced by Wondery and Treefort Media. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review. Follow Killer Psyche on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen one week early and ad-free. In the episode notes, you'll find some links and offers from our sponsors. Please support them. By supporting them, you help us offer the show for free. Another way you can support the show is by filling out a survey at wondery.com survey.